again and welcome to the Bold Love Podcast with Pastor Bob Roberts Jr., where we highlight the uncommon journeys of bridge builders and peacemakers that are living out their faith in the public square by boldly loving their neighbor and working together to build resilient communities. Our goal here in the Bold Love Podcast is to encourage you, the listener, to live out your faith boldly, to learn how to better love your neighbor and how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith. My name is Josh Tate and welcome back to the Bold Love Podcast. Can't believe it, but we are nearing the end of our season three themed Unlikely, which is focused on conversations that allow us to hear from people that are different than us, different worldviews, different faiths, different ideas, and really focusing on how we can better communicate with one another. It's been incredible. Christine Kane, David Beasley, Imam Mohammed Majid, Ambassador Rabbi David Saperstein, and Walter Kim. They have all been incredible guests, and all of them are actually special guests at the upcoming Global Faith Forum on March 6th and 7th, 2022. You do not want to miss this event, so go ahead and go to globalfaithforum.com to register there. It's free, but seating is really limited for this historic event that you don't want to miss in Dallas on March 6th and 7th. So go ahead and go register globalfaithforum.com. But today, you are in for a treat as we have a special edition of the podcast where we are going to focus on the state of the evangelical church, solutions to some of the issues that have been dealing with, and why evangelicals should be more open to multi-faith, diving into biblical reason and practical reasons for involvement. In this Christian roundtable, we have Pastor John Jenkins, who's the senior pastor at First Baptist Glen Arden in Maryland, Tyler Johnson, who's the pastor of Redemption Church in Arizona, and Daniel Yang, who is the director of the SEND Institute. These three incredible leaders will bring a very unique and multi-ethnic perspective on evangelicalism, uh, what they are seeing as the state of the Western church, and their hope for the future that the work that they are a part of. So it's going to be a great conversation. So go ahead, sit back and take a listen. And I'm going to go ahead and welcome in the host of the Bold Love Podcast, Pastor Bob Roberts, Jr., I am so glad to have all of you here today. We have a fantastic crew of people, and uh, I love them all. I know them all. I've traveled the world with them all. And let me tell you something. They love me with all their heart, every single one of them. So I, I want to thank you, uh, Pastor John and, and Tyler and Daniel, for being with me today. Thanks for coming on. Uh, we're going to be talking today a lot about multi-faith and evangelicals and what it's like. Uh, because the truth of the matter is we evangelicals really are not in that interfaith circle all that much at all. And one of the lessons I learned is we're not in there because uh, we have some exclusive ideas about Jesus and the gospel and what we believe, and and, uh, we don't want to be looked down on. So sometimes it's better just not to show up. It's the way some of us have thought. I don't think that's the best way, but that's kind of how we've approached it. Uh, but we've discovered that we can hold our positions. We can just be nice about it. And we've actually discovered that the Bible talks about how we ought to continue to be in relationship with people who are not our same faith. And so we're going to talk about that some today. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to know just a little snippet from each one of you about yourself and your journey in evangelical church leadership, because every single one of you uh, are significant leaders. And uh, we'll start with you, Pastor Tyler. Just 
give us a yeah, little so bit. Yeah, so I grew up in Denver, Colorado. Uh, my father is a very prominent amateur baseball coach, which is 18 and under. And so I joke with people and say we were a baseball family first. Baseball is the American pastime and Americans are Christians. So I say that tongue in cheek. I mean, we've celebrated Christmas and Easter, but when I was 17, um, I had a very real encounter with Jesus. And because of sports, I ended up tying originally into what would be called parachurch sports ministry. So fellowship of Christian athletes, athletes in action. And because those have evangelical roots, the relationships you established, I ended up in a in a church just down the road from my house with a man named Mark Brewer, who had a Presbyterian background. Um, he ended up at Bel Air Presbyterian Church. And so when I went to Arizona State on a baseball scholarship, I connected again to athletes in action and fellowship Christian athletes and found myself in being sent to a church. I, I had no real connection to local churches at all, just attending. And somebody said, I'll send you to a church you'll never leave, which is now the Gilbert Congregation of Redemption. Um, and that was in 1997. Wow. That's incredible. Daniel, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, you know, um, my my dad is the uh, first Christian ever in the lineage of our family. Um, ethnically, we're Hmong, and they came to the United States as um, immigrants, uh, refugee immigrants from Laos. And so, even the term evangelical has never been technically used to describe like the faith that I grew up in 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 the home. Because, like, if you're Hmong, there there isn't even a a word that is equivalent to evangelical. Um, and so, you know, that was never a category that I used to describe myself until uh, probably in my late twenties, because uh, I grew up in a predominantly ethnic immigrant uh, Hmong church. And uh, actually, Bob, when I came on staff at Northwood and was with you for those three years, I think that in some ways was kind of my entry into a larger mainstream, you know, stream of uh, evangelicalism. Um, you know, prior to that, we belonged to a denomination that was Christian Missionary Alliance, which is evangelical. But again, you know, it's it's kind of a different perspective when you're an immigrant refugee. You you, just, you don't have the same categories. At least you don't use the same categories. And and I think uh, my time there in, in in Dallas with you and uh, planting a church with the North American Mission Board, which is Southern Baptist. And, uh, you know, that was another kind of like um, another step into American evangelicalism. And then now leading uh, the sentence to at Wheaton College, um, uh, you know, which is in some ways, some would argue, you know, the center of American evangelicalism, at least here in the Midwest. Um, so you know, there's been different phases. And I feel like every season of life, I get closer to the center. And, you know, I've mixed feelings about being so close to the center of American evangelicalism. But uh, that's where I'm at. And, uh, you know, it's, it's part of the story that God's crafting and through the work that we're doing. Pastor John Jenkins. Let me first of all tell you how honored I am to be on the call with you and these brothers. Uh, glad to meet and again communicate with Tyler and Daniel. And thank you for having me. I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Glenard in Maryland. It's just outside of Washington, D.C., an African-American community, uh, suburban to D.C. Um, been the pastor here for 32 years. Um, it's a church I grew up in, uh, and um, so I'm I'm pastoring people now who once taught me in Sunday school. <laughs> That's good. Uh, did that, but you know the thing, um, and I, I like what Daniel said because in the African American community, it would be rare for an African American com uh, church or uh, people to identify 
by saying that they are an evangelical, even though the definition of what an evangelical is, uh, we clearly meet those criteria, but we just don't refer ourselves to that term in our community. Now, John, you, you're the chairman of the board for the National Association of Evangelicals. And Walter Kim is now the president, Korean-American, and Joanne Lyons is the vice president, a female. I mean, it sounds like, at least on, on the uh, Organization of National Association of Evangelicals, that trying to broaden a little bit, uh, push out some and say, hey, it's not just a bunch of white people or a bunch of white men. Would that be a fair yeah, it is. It is fair. It is trying to be more in, inclusive of of uh, people from outside of the majority culture. And um, yeah, so it was done and has been done deliberately on purpose. Um, and it's a great thing. It's a great thing to hear perspectives that perhaps in the past had not been given much prominence or acknowledgement. So it's an honor to be in the role and the position that I serve as the chairman of the board. Um, and it's, it's an honor to see God moving and bringing together uh, people who are evangelicals from uh, different persuasions from across the country. That word evangelical has created a lot of angst the past five years. I think there was probably challenge with it all along, but I would say especially the past few years in particular, uh, when you say evangelical, you just don't think about uh, Bevington's, you know, four things, but you tend to think about politics. Uh, you, th you think about evangelical views on social issues, not just abortion, but race and how that's viewed and immigrants and refugees. And it's almost like uh, that word is challenging. What we think it means and what others take it to mean are two different things. How, how, do you, how do you wrestle with that, Tyler? Yeah, I think similar to what Daniel and John said from a different vantage point, I wrestle with it quite a bit. And my evaluation, um, the longer of what's being exposed in a separation between the wider culture, um, kind of having a negative view of evangelicals, I've wrestled with that a lot. And my conclusion is I think we've prioritized the wrong things in broader evangelicalism for a really long time, which I think the emphasis has been being right or wrong. Um, depending upon your tradition, there's been an establishment of a very clear sense of this is what's right and this is what's wrong over love. And I say a lot that I think if you follow the biblical pattern, 1 Corinthians 13, is that love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing and it rejoices in truth. But love is supreme. And I think because of that, we fall in these traps all the time of if those people are wrong, there's a separation rather than love calling us to cross boundaries and barriers between people of difference. How do you, do you identify Daniel as evangelical? I mean, you, you're at the stalwart uh, Wheaton, you know, college. How, how do you wrestle with that? Yeah, you know, I, I think for for the time where we're in, it's still a useful um, label. You know, I, I sometimes wonder if it'll become like the term Protestantism, where, you know, sometimes people have affiliated with 
kind of a mainline, uh, even a liberal uh, drift or a liberal kind of like um, category. I wonder if eventually evangelicalism will be considered conflated with like, you know, some form of fundamentalism. I don't think we're there yet. Uh, but I think it's still useful. And I, the reason why I think it's useful is because I think there's still a global church that still identifies with the um, the heart behind being an evangelical, which is, you know, the person in the work of Jesus and the fidelity to scripture. And so I think from that regards, I, it's still a very useful term. Uh, but I think there is some work that needs to happen, uh, you know, and, and part of the replenishing of evangelicals in at least North America has been the added voices of immigrants. And as a matter of fact, if you were to pull out immigrants, um, you know, from the evangelical category in America, you would probably see, you know, a pretty steady decline. But, you know, so immigrants are, are a part of replenishing the evangelical um, you know, population and voices. And I think that's going to have, you know, some kind of long term effect. Um, so I, I think polling from the global church is important. I, I've, I've heard others say, you know, um, I, I don't identify with, with American evangelicalism, but I do identify with global evangelicalism. And in their minds, if that's a helpful categorization, I think that's helpful as well. And then just lastly, I'll say this, the NAE and, you know, their work with immigrants, you know, especially through World Relief, I think has been very helpful in this regards. Um, World Relief and the work that the NAE does there uh, continues to help broaden and, and, and put a better picture of who evangelicals truly are. And I think that's important to acknowledge that. And from, from that perspective, I think it's still, um, still a, a helpful term. John, when you hear the word evangelical, as an African-American pastor, when you heard that word 10 years ago, did it mean anything to you? Unfortunately, the term has been hijacked by the media and redefined, in my opinion. Um, and basically, um, you know, you asked me what I thought about 10 years ago. You know, I can't remember what I did yesterday. You know, I'm getting to be all <laughs> right now. You know, I walk into rooms and forget why I walked into rooms. So I can't <laughs> remember what I did 10 years ago. I can tell you today, though, it has a negative connotation. It has a, a political connotation to it. But the reality is, I like what Daniel said, it's a term, you know, you can't easily redefine just come up with a word to define who we are and what we believe and what we stand for and what we're doing. It's just, it's, it's very difficult to just try to create a new term, but the media has hijacked the term and attached it to the right wing political Trumpism culture. And I think it's problematic because that is not what uh, the emblem and the image that we want to be presented of what an evangelical is. So let me ask you, how, how do you see the future of evangelicalism? I mean, we're, we're, uh, we're seeing decline. Uh, we see pushback. We see resentment in the, in the pro, uh, popular culture. What do, what do you see for the future of evangelicalism? You know, I think, uh, again, I, I like what Daniel said, in the minority community and immigrant community, um, the church is growing. Um, you know, the, the revival is happening in some of, in the majority community. So where, whereas in the uh, majority community, it might be declining, but I know in uh, our culture, in our community, it's, uh, it's growing. Daniel, what do you see for the future? 
I, you know, I, I think I, I think there are, are many futures. I think evangelicalism won't necessarily splinter, although it could splinter. Uh, and maybe some are arguing it is splintering. But I think there are multiple futures. I think there will be multiple streams um, and all streams will get, you know, wider and bigger. Um, I, I do sense that with the next generation, and part of this is anecdotally, but also I feel like this is a large conversation that we're seeing unfold on Twitter and social media. But there will be those who will uh, continue to abandon the term. Uh, they'll stay orthodox. And I, I think especially young people, uh, you know, there there's going to be that uh, people, you know, group of people that will continue to stay orthodox Christians engaged on mission, fidelity to scripture. But they'll abandon the term. And I think that uh, that's definitely a stream of the evangelical future. And so I, for me, what I what I hope is that regardless of kind of which future you choose or, you know, whichever stream a person ends up in, that they can still see that they're a part of the broader body of Christ. And especially here in North America, um, I think that fragmentation doesn't have to necessarily mean like complete separation. I think in some ways, um, this is the strength of what Protestantism has been, is that it's allowed the body of Christ to grow in very different directions and still uh, make an impact in the world. And I think that, you know, if we can continue to keep that big picture in mind, uh, I think that's going to be, you know, a hopeful future. You know, I'm I'm probably less concerned about people carrying that label with them towards the future. But if they do the things that evangelicals talk about, I feel like there's a pretty decent future moving forward. Tyler, you've paid a price at your church. Uh, I have as well at the point of speaking up on racial issues. And it seems as if the points of contention in evangelicalism, it's not around theology. Uh, it seems to be more around social issues. Uh, how, do, how do you see that played out in your community and, and in the pastors? You, I mean, you have a very large church. Uh, the pastors that you relate to across the country, uh, how, how does it play out? Yeah, I mean, it plays out a lot like it plays out in the wider culture. Um, I think the reality of the wedding together, and this has been said many, many times, but the wedding together of evangelicalism and politics, evangelicalism and nationalism, um, a rightful, you know, clear understanding seems to be really hard to define um, when you're talking to different people. And so this kind of goes back to the question you just asked Pastor John and Daniel in my mind is I think they're um, what's being exposed is a lack of, if you used, you, you referred to this earlier, Bebbington's quadrilateral of, you know, Christocentric, the Bible, social action and evangelism being the four. I think there's a reality in, in being Christocentric, focused on Jesus. Um, one thing that it seems really obvious to me is we have not emphasized the person of Jesus nearly enough. Um, theology about his work has kind of become very elevated of which I believe to the core of my being um, and thank God for it. But, but the focus on the person of Jesus of how to interact with people of difference, what love walking among us really looked like is really significant. I think the reality of social action um, as defined by the scriptures. So to be a, a true evangelical, I think one thing that's being exposed is at least from my vantage point is these moments of how do a Bible people miss this so much of the Bible um, is, is where I, you know, and it, and it makes you as a pastor that's been in this a couple decades, really wrestle internally with yourself of, man, we've been at this this long and this is the result. So, you know, I think it, it is with me, made me ask a lot of questions about 
what is the church methodology, what we're actually doing, is it actually working? And then I, I'll just say with evangelism, um, I think we have to ask bigger questions about what evangelism actually means, um, what it actually looks like. But Pastor John, do you think there's a gap between white pastors and black pastors in America on the racial question? Of course. Yeah. Unfortunately, I, I hate to say that. I, I wish it was not true. You know, Sunday morning still remains the most segregated day of the week. Um, and while there are pockets of interactions and encounters, I know in my own personal life, I am involved and connected with um, several white pastors, uh, both locally and around the country. Um, and we're cultivating and continuing to develop our meaningful relationships. Um, so there are pockets, but it's nowhere near to the magnitude of which I think it needs to be to try to bring a level of harmony in our country. The tensions between the races and the tensions between the churches uh, is, is just, it's, it's not good. It's very heavy and very tough. And um, my prayer is that God would move us to a place of being more open and more receiving and accepting of each other. Um, you know, that is, that's my prayer. I'll be in the room. Can I, can say one more thing? Let me say one more thing on that, because sure. in order for that to happen, we have to move out of our comfort zones. We have to move out of our, where we feel comfortable and convenient. Uh, and in, in our church, our church joined a primarily Anglo denomination, not because we needed anything from that denomination. One of the reasons I joined it, I joined it for three reasons, but one of the main reasons is I wanted the African-Americans in the church that I pastor to know that though many of them were raised or grew up or were experienced the civil rights era where the police dogs and the hoses were, were turned on them, they lived through that. I wanted them to know that there are some genuine Christians of the Anglo uh, culture that love people, period, that love and accept and embrace uh, people of color. And um, that's why I joined it. And, and I would press that um, uh, it, it would be my heart's delight to see more Anglo churches reaching toward engaging in the African-American community. Pastor John, I was in a room couple of years ago with some very prominent white pastors. And I remember several of them saying, yeah, I know T.D. Jakes and Tony Evans and John Jenkins, and, and we don't have racial issues. We all get along. And, and I just, uh, I was taken aback because I don't know uh, T.D. Jakes or Tony Evans, but I know you, and I know a lot of African-American pastors, and there is a gap. And, and what would you say I think sometimes a white pastor who's in the majority, he thinks because somebody's nice to him, everything must be wonderful. What would you say to those Anglo pastors? How do they get past superficial conversations? Any advice on that? You know, I, I listened to a very prominent a very prominent Anglo pastor speak recently, and he he concluded some beliefs about the African American community on the basis of something he heard one of one of the persons in his church say about the African-American community. And, and I wanted to jump up in that service and smack him and say, 
you can't conclude what happens in our culture based on what one person in your church told you. Um, and, I, and my thing would be engage, go visit, sit down, uh, get, in, get involved, go see what it's like. It's easy, um, you know, in order for African-Americans to survive in the United States of America, they, they, African-Americans have to learn something about the Anglo culture. In order to get a job and work and do a lot of stuff they have to do, we, we got to come become acclimated and learn some things about the Anglo community and culture. But an Anglo doesn't have to learn anything about the African-American community in order for them to succeed in, a, in the United States of America. And, and that's sad to me that there's no motivation, no very little uh, involvement in actually engaging or having an interest in engaging in our community. I, uh, I'll never forget the first time I met you on, on a ship. We were on a cruise together and uh, I saw you there. I didn't know a thing about you, but I remember Nikki and I coming over visiting with, with you and Trina. And uh, I just wanted to encourage you. Found out your church was 10 times <laughs> bigger than mine. And you wound up encouraging me. And now I'm in your pastor's covering and, and, and you're teaching me how to do church all over again. And I'm grateful for that. Tyler, l- let me ask you, what when you think about being an Anglo-American white pastor, what is our role in the broader cult- culture as the majority? What responsibility do we bear? What are some practical things that we can do to make sure that our perceptions aren't just one person in our church, but we're getting a broader understanding. Yeah, I think it's to leverage our influence to do just what Pastor John said, which is engage, meaning leverage our influence to get people to tables, to hear stories different than theirs, vantage points. I think um, we have articulated a lot in side white evangelical circles, I would say an overemphasis on Romans 10 of the ministry of the mouth. And I think we need to teach a lot about the ministry of the ear, of the power of listening to people in a humble posture, not preparing yourself to say like, what if, or what about, but just to listen and to hear. And I think some of that, I mean, really helps at a family level. It would help marriages tremendously. Um, people feel very loved when you use your ears um, and close, close your mouths, which James tells us to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Um, so I think that's the leveraging the influence and using our influence to help foster and create tables where these types of interactions can happen on an ongoing basis, not just once. Because um, my experience is when you do it once, people walk out trying to defeat what they just experienced, even if what they experienced was very warm, um, very engaging. I think when you go a second time, there's a reality um, of the humanness of the person and the validity of their experience. And then when you get to a friendship, so I'll just say this quick in our church, um, we've created this spectrum uh, of foreigner friend family. And we've experienced in our environments, people love to engage in mission or evangelism to the foreigner, by which I don't just mean overseas, someone that's different than them. At the moment you begin to move to friendship, they get very uncomfortable, but it gets really, really weird when it's, you're calling them to be family, um, recognizing that and what that ultimately looks like. So I think it's Levenger influence to that. That's awesome. I'm convinced that the same sin of racism 
is tied to our fear of people of other religions. Uh, I've seen people uh, viscerally respond when we begin to reach out to the Muslim community in our, as long as I did work with Muslims around the world, Northwood loved it. But man, when I began to reach out to the Muslims in our community and neighborhood, we had people calling us the Muslim church and, and everything else. It was tough. Daniel, I can't remember the year you came to Northwood, but you were with me when I had, the ship had left the dock, so to speak. And we were moving in that direction and it was not easy. Uh, it was difficult. Uh, it was challenging. Uh, and I didn't change a single bit of my theology. I just became friends, Tyler, like you said, with people. And they'd come to our home for the holidays. And uh, other times, they, they became close to us. What was it like for you, Daniel, as you began to move into the arena of multi-faith? Because you were with Northwood as we began to do that. And then you were with me in Doha, where for the very first time we went. And and uh, here in Dallas, I mean, you were on the front end of all of that. I'm just curious, what was it like for you? Or was it no big deal? Well, you know, I, I mean, I, it was huge for me. Uh, part, part of it was because uh, the vast majority of my family are not yet Christian. So they're um, quasi-Buddhists, uh, animists. You know, um, and then I grew up in Detroit, and which is at the time was the largest, uh, you know, Middle Eastern population um in 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 the united states and so i had always just grown up around um arabic muslims and um so actually before i even came out of dallas i was already doing interfaith uh work um working with jews and muslims and doing what was called listen learn and live uh, cohorts uh, before I was even in, you know, pastoral ministry. And uh, that's actually how, um, you know, I begin picking your brain around how do I do this in a way where people don't think I'm liberal and have the ban of the gospel. And that really became, you know, the beginning of our, our, our long-term relationship. And, uh, but I think a part of that was me had, I, we had already lived that tension in my own family and my own community. And then I began realizing that, like, this is this has got to be the way forward if evangelicals, you know, Christians are going to continue to be a witness to their neighbors uh, of other religions is if they don't get to know them, if they don't become friends, then you're never going to share the thing that you love the most, which is Jesus with them. And it became a really a, a lifelong journey. And, uh, you know, so when we were in Dallas, you're right. I mean, uh, I, I remember those years, Bob, and when we had a thousand Muslims come by by charter buses and uh and you joked that you were gonna baptize you know imams and you were ready to do that i, I think you, you would have if they would have been prepared to do so and <laughs> i do remember how uncomfortable it was for people I, but i also remember that night like you said something that was really profound and it impact impacted me because here you are you know pastor in a large you know uh, church and you said for the first time in your life, you said this is you've never felt God smile down on you as much as you did that night. And that profoundly impacted me because what how I took what I took away from that was that you had taken what people had perceived to be an enemy. You know, mind you, that was only 10 years after 9-11 and uh, you'd welcome them into, you know, your house, which was, you know, Northwood Community Church. And that was for you, in a sense, you know, a mountaintop for ministry and as impactful. So when we planted in Toronto, we planted in a predominantly uh, Hindu and Muslim neighborhood. And uh, not because we wanted to necessarily reach Muslims and Hindus, but because we just wanted to be the minority religion. 
and we were in that particular neighborhood that we planted. And even here in Chicago, I lived uh, in the third uh, in the area where there's the third largest Hindu temple, which is um, you know, two blocks up from me. And um, it's just it's a fascinating. You're much humbler as a Christian when you realize that you're not necessarily the majority in a particular community. And your mind completely shifts from operating as somebody who needs to control to somebody who then needs to serve and come alongside. And I think if anything multi-faith is teaching me is that, like if your posture defaults to coming alongside and serving, then there really isn't any group in any places that you couldn't go. Tyler, do you think people have any value outside being converted to the faith? Yes, I absolutely do. I mean, I think we, just to be very direct, um, we benefit from the value people offer all the time with plumbing in our house and people picking up our trash and establishing laws that we benefit from. Um, so I think to, to say people hold no value outside of conversion to Christ doesn't live up immediately. But I think the reality is when you get into it, um, there's just a lot of beauty inside being made in the image of God. And there's a lot of ways all kinds of people manifest God um, when they well, now, wait they, a minute. Image of God. You don't have the image of God if you're not a Christian, right? I do not think that's what the Bible teaches at all. Um, I think the Bible very clearly articulates that all people are made in the image of God. I mean, you see this in Genesis after the fall is that the image of God is not lost and then redeemed only in Christ. Um, you don't lose the image of God. Human beings are made in the image of God. And so I think when you're willing to sit down and see the beauty of that and foster that and flame the good in other people and the good that they're doing in society, um, I believe that's a that's a strong component of what a portion of the quadrilateral Bed Bebbington used of evangelism is that I do think that that is a, a major part that we need to play. So yes, I strongly believe there's value in people outside of being converted to Christ. I think the gospels show that really clearly too. It's good, Tyler. So Pastor John, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. So that's only about Christians, right? Christians making peace with Christians. I mean, we're not supposed to make peace with the world or get along with the world. I mean, we got the truth. Why are we going to mess with, with anyone else? I think it's very unfortunate that so many interpretations of the Bible makes people who don't think like you and believe like you enemies, uh, demons, ungodly. Um, when um, I don't, I don't think that's the heart of God at all. Um, and it's our responsibility to love on them, to care about them, to have compassion for them, uh, for others who don't believe like us. And I just, I think it's really sad that, um, and, and I've been exposed to this, you know, growing up and being discipled and taught that you make people who don't think like you and believe like you, your enemies. And I don't think that's the heart of God for us to treat people as their enemies. Matter of fact, Jesus said, love your enemies. That's what he said. <laughs> you know, the essence of being created in the image of God is that, that you love people. For so long, I would stand up and I would see people first as sinners. And uh, I don't think we have to be convinced of the sinfulness of man. But I've wondered why did it take me so long to look at a person first as created in the image of God? What was wrong with me that I, I didn't see that first? What was wrong inside my head and my thought, my religious culture? Pastor John, when did you first get to know a Muslim? 
so my first experience with uh, getting to know a Muslim happened at a retreat that uh, the organization you founded uh, and established uh, set up a retreat that brought evangelicals and Muslim imams together and caused us to have an opportunity to spend time with each other. And I met a most wonderful iman uh, and got to realize he has the same hopes, dreams that I have, the same heart of uh, caring for his family and wanting to see his children do well and loving his wife. You know, if you listen to if, if all you do is listen to the news, you know, all Muslims are demons and terrorists. But that's so far from the truth in reality. And so. Um, uh, having that opportunity to meet Iman Majid uh, was amazing for me and enlightening to me that uh, I, I give God praise for that opportunity to this day. You know, I had someone once say, Bob, why are you working with these Muslims? They're, they're, aren't they demon possessed? They believe in a religion you don't believe in. And, and it caught me off guard. I didn't know how to answer it. But you know, one of the things I've concluded is having been raised a Baptist, I don't know, we've got enough demons in the Baptist denomination. I'll focus on trying to get rid of some of those versus versus all the rest I just don't know about and can't speak to. But I do remember uh, you and Imam Majid, uh, I mean, being together. And I remember, uh, I mean, to this day, John, I'm never with him that he doesn't bring you up. And with when I'm with a bunch of Muslims around the world, doesn't matter what we're doing. He's always talking about John Jenkins. And I will say this, John, he likes your music at your church much more than my music. He actually said, you know, Bob, I'm, I'm, I'm black. I'm, I'm a Sudanese American. So I'm sorry. I do like John Jenkins music a lot better. So anyhow, you know, as a result of what you did, uh, Pastor John, uh, there have been many Muslims that have come to your church. Some Sundays you knew about it, some Sundays you didn't, but uh, they wanted to come. They wanted to experience uh, what it was like. And uh, you did not seem to have a hard time crossing over in terms of relationship uh, to the imams, Pastor John. Uh, maybe you didn't know them. Maybe you had questions. But I know with a lot of white pastors, I've had a lot of suspicion, preconceived ideas. It's been challenging. Do you think being an African-American made that easier for you or was that a non-issue? I'm just curious. Well, you know, um, if I could be just point blank, honest and transparent, you know, I, I am an African-American that has grown up in America. And that alone by itself means that I've had periods and moments of discrimination and rejection in America by white people, by Anglo people. So. I've walked the journey of not being accepted. I've walked the journey of being denied opportunities or being thought of in a way without even giving me an opportunity to be properly evaluated. I've, I've lived, I've lived through that. That's been a part of my life. And I could give you instant after instant from both jobs I've had being pulled over by the police. I can talk about all of that. And so there's a level of camaraderie that comes when I meet somebody who may have had that same kind of a, experience or journey. That's good. So I want you to think about the craziest experience you've had in multi-faith. Give me the craziest experience or the most profound experience you've had in multi-faith. Get it in your head. 
Uh, I'm going to start with you, Daniel, then Tyler, then we'll come back over to Pastor Jenkins. Yeah, um, I love this question. We were, uh, I was planting and leading a church in downtown Toronto in a neighborhood called Regent Park, which was predominantly uh, immigrant. And uh, those who were immigrants were Muslim and Hindu in background. We were doing a, it was, I think it was an Easter event. It was an Easter event and uh, we had volunteers and um, uh, a lot of the volunteers were Muslim girls and they were trying to get some school credit. And uh, this is a way in which we were serving our community and said, come to our Easter event. And it was a Saturday, it was at a boys and girls club, it was a community event. And, um, and we had uh, the resurrection eggs and we had to train our volunteers on how to talk about the resurrection story. And uh, we were very clear, you know, that we're Christian. And I think there was a dynamic where they understood that. And, and um, we were training our volunteers in the resurrection egg story because they were going to do that craft with the children. And um, uh, one, a few of our volunteers were, were Muslim girls and they had the hijab on. And we were training them in that. And it, something clicked inside of me. It, was just, it just made sense. That when you're serving the community and when you're just authentically who you are and you allow people to be authentically who they are, then sharing the gospel is not like an anxious thing. It's just like it's a part of who you are and what you're doing. And and the girls were actually at some point sharing as Muslims, they were sharing the resurrection story with the kids as they were doing the crafts. And you know, I mean, we and we were really clear that like we didn't want them to feel like they were being like, you don't have to do this. You know, this is a Christian story, but they wanted to and it was helpful for them because they had no clue what Easter was. And but that was such a small like reminder that like when you do things like Bob reminds me of that one conversation that you always kind of push church planners to just have that one conversation, not multiple you know, conversations, but have one. And we were doing that and uh, it was just so natural for us to share who we were. And but like I know I'll never forget these uh, Muslim girls with the hijab sharing the resurrection story with neighborhood kids. That's hilarious. You got to tell me about resurrection eggs. I hadn't heard about that. What happened? Jesus bust out of an egg. I mean, it's, I mean, what, it's like an egg carton. It's an egg carton with plastic eggs and you open it up and it gives you bits and pieces of the resurrection story. So, OK, yeah. anything to redeem Easter eggs. I get it. Okay, Tyler. Which is a which is a pagan thing, right? I mean that version <laughs> that version of Easter Poor is a Muslim pagan girl. story. They didn't get the resurrection story. You messed them up, Daniel. <laughs> Tyler, what about you? Yeah, we've had, I mean, there's a lot of things I'm very um I don't know if proud's the right word, but proud <clears throat> that our church has been involved in. Um, but I'll just say on a personal level, actually the Dude Ranch retreat, um, I made a strong connection with an imam in Nashville who had been having his mosque tagged and people were, were very upset about them building a mosque um, outside of Nashville. And he and I sat one night and because of the way we were taught about multi-faith of leaning into difference while prioritizing relationship, uh, we had a really long, like way into the night and morning conversation that got very direct where an Egyptian man got very animated, like his culture does, um, talking to me distinctly about the differences about, you know, if you elevate a man to the place of God, you know, and then he got up and you know, started wiping his shirt and said, if I have a dirty shirt, I can't clean my shirt and then say yours is clean. And we had this incredible conversation where I said, wow, you're articulating a lot of what I believe really well. Um, and at the end of it, it was very escalated, certainly if a lot of um, 
more American people of white uh, culture would have been there. They would have been frightened by how elevated a God, but it established a relationship to where to this day, we text each other, um, talk, check in on each other, have had, you know, numbers of times when I'm in challenging situations, I've talked to him and vice versa. Um, so that, that personally captured me. I mean, I'd had experiences with Muslims before, but the level of real authentic relationship in that moment um, made me realize how beautiful the work of multi-faith really is. That's good. Pastor John. Yeah, I, 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 those guys, both uh, Daniel and Tyler, have shared, you know, impactful, uh, eye-opening journeys. And I'm, I'm not sure I've had anything so dramatic. Uh, just meeting um, some Muslims and talking to them was, in, was life-altering for me. Because in the past, I had had virtually no experience talking to a Muslim at all. Uh, and uh, going to that retreat and just hearing them share and talk. And I got, a, I got such a better understanding of, of their journey and their uh, heart, uh, their desires. Um, and, and our solutions are different. Um, you know, how, how they, how they resolve and pursue those desires of theirs are different than the way I pursue them. But I don't have to make them demons. I don't have to demonize them because they go in a different direction than me. And, and unfortunately, you know, evangelicals have been taught to demonize them. And that the eye opening, here's what's eye opening to me, is that what, what the evangelical community had taught me is not really what Jesus taught. Now, there's the eye-opening thing for me, is Jesus taught us to love your enemies, love those who use you, you know, be kind to them. Whereas, you know, all too often in churches, we are taught to demonize these people. So that's the, that's the eye-opening thing for me. And you know, Pastor Jenkins, the epitome of a disciple is the ability to love your enemies. Absolutely. I mean, the number one measure, Dallas Willard, uh, actually wrote that, that the sign of the most mature disciple is one that can choose to love their enemies. And I think, I think uh, for me, I began to learn to love enemies that were different from me, from the Vietnamese, and now I'm close to the Vietnamese, and, and then I got close to the Muslims. And I think that uh, just for what it's worth, the craziest thing that ever happened to me, Daniel, I don't know if you were at Northwood at this time or not, but it was the first time we'd ever done anything with Muslims, and it was a small event. And so uh, we had like a couple of hundred Muslims that were coming to our church. We went to the mosque, we went to the synagogue, then the mosque, and they all came to the church. So I worked real hard with Northwood, and, and I said, now here's what you say, salam alaikum. And, and so I, I practiced them on Sunday morning. I say, okay, they have a special greeting, stand up. And so all these uh you know, uh, white Christians, a lot of them like me, got up and went, Shalom Alekum. And I said, uh, no, Salam Alekum. <laughs> and I thought, they got their religions mixed up here, but, but there is so much to be done. Tyler, I've told your story a lot. I, it just hit me. This is the first time I've ever been somewhere public with you. You called me one day five years ago. I don't remember how long ago. But you got you'd been to the retreat and y'all had a situation in Phoenix. What happened? Yeah, so this is some years ago. There was um, 
basically it was very pre, I mean, this was before um, the Trump presidency even, and there was, but there was the emergence of a lot of these people that wanted to go picket, but not just picket outside of a mosque during Friday prayers, but they had organized a whole bunch of people with ammunition, guns, um, and they were talking about how big it was going to be and how violent it could be. And the reality of us reading, I mean, truthfully, your books, engaging some of the local um, net training, and then being at multi-faith retreats, um, we had a lot of leaders doing things. So people had done what we called peace feast initiatives, which was taking our people to Muslim-owned restaurants, really trying to do that, neighbors' tables, where we were doing a lot of these things. And without any of my leadership, um, some of our other leaders mobilized hundreds of people um, to go in blue shirts representing peace around the mosque to create a wall between the demonstrators with ammunition and the people going to the Friday prayers. And it was very interesting. I mean, it got on TV and there was a, and it got on TV and there was a man um, in a helicopter trying to cover it for the news. And he said, this looks more like a peace rally than it does a conflict. And what had happened is many, you know, we did peace training beforehand with many of the people and even had people go over to the other side um, to those with the guns and actually fostered some relationships of them going over to meet some of the Muslims. And some of them, you know, a few of them put their guns down and said, I really apologize. I was wrong. But it was a lot of this gun rights activism, you know, fear of Islamophobia is what it was. Um, but it was it was really profound. The best part of the whole story is I didn't do any of the personal mobilization of it. I was going to be there on the front lines and I got a, a terrible episode of kidney stones at the time. So I couldn't even be. So I had to sit and watch the live footage on TV. And I just sat there and wept the whole time of the power of well, yeah, when your people taste the kingdom and the humanity and image of God in people, what they're willing to do by of practicing Jesus. That's incredible. That's incredible. I'm so we've actually got a clip of that also. We're going to show it the uh, global faith form. Why would you say churches, especially evangelical churches, should get more involved in multi-faith? What do you, what do you think, Daniel Yang? What would you say? Here, you're getting your PhD. Give me, give me three reasons that a fourth grader can understand why every Christian in church ought to be plugged into multi-faith. Yeah, well, the fourth graders can understand how. Well, in some ways, fourth graders do understand it well because it's their everyday reality. And the, the public school environment is much more real in terms of like everyday life than many of our, our churches. And what I mean by that is that the religious pluralism that you see in, in elementary schools and high schools, that's where real life happens. And that's where most of our Christian youth are actually engage, engaging these things, you know, and if our if our youth groups don't have a realistic understanding that we live in a pluralistic society, you know, sociologists thought back in the 60s and 70s that if the world became more secular, it was it was going to become more atheistic and less belief in God. And what they realized 30 years later, this is Peter Berger, he says that secularism doesn't bring a more atheistic society. It brings a more religious pluralistic society. And um, and I don't think that's something that Christians need to fear. I think in some ways, um, that's a beautiful place. It was the birthplace of the New Testament church, was a re religiously pluralistic society. And so in some ways, this is the natural habitat for 
uh, for Christian people. And so that's why to, for us to learn how to engage in multi-faith is really the same environment that the New Testament church learned how to be the church mm. when they were religious minorities and it was religiously diverse. So it's kind of a, almost like a callback to our ancient roots. For us to engage in multi-faith is for us to be like the ancient New Testament church. Um, and I think that, you know, I think we need that. And I think, uh, again, in some ways, um, our, you know, my elementary, uh, you know, children and, and teenage children, that's, that's the reality in the public school system. I'm, I'm often people, you know, will refer to me as an expert in Islam, and they want me to speak different places. And I'm not, and, I, and I'm not being modest. I am not an expert in Islam. I'm just friends with a lot of Muslims and people of other religions. And, and one of the things I would just say in agreement with you, Daniel, uh, to people is it's not knowing their religion that helps you be in a relationship with them or even a good witness for that matter. It's just loving them and being a friend with them. And uh, you'll learn more about their faith and yourself by loving them than, than anything else. That's a good word, Daniel. Pastor John, what would you say? Why should churches and people get plugged into multi-faith? You know, the world is in such a camp, cancel culture attitude. The world, the world is like that. And we're not supposed to be like the world. Come out from among them. Uh, we need to come out from that attitude, that posture of counseling people out or rejecting people because they don't agree with us. Or, or whatever, for whatever reason. And, you know, in, in this world, we want to be peacemakers. Jesus has called us to be peacemakers. Blessed are those the peacemakers, for they shall inherit the earth. That's the call of God to us. And so we should be obedient to what God commanded us to do. It is a, it, to me, it is a part of being obedient to the commands of the Lord Jesus. Yeah. That's good. What about you, Pastor Tyler? Yeah, I mean, I think... I love um, both what Pastor John and Daniel said. I, I really believe it's um, when you take the public school, I think if we look and care, care about the influence of Jesus in our culture, we have to sit at tables, which really is what multi-faith is, is having a real experience with people of difference and that translates um, way beyond just the multi-faith experience. Um, if our public schools look like that, our marketplaces are going to look more like that um, in the future. And so there's a pragmatic benefit to people understanding how to cross lines of difference and have good communication, um, be compassionate, really understand, listen, understand people use the same words in different ways. Um, so I think there's, a, there's an evangelistic power to it. And there's a pragmatic benefit that goes way beyond even faith um, to, to really be able to function in a pluralistic society. This is all good. One of the things I would just add to that is when we stand up for the religious freedom of people different from us, man, does it help our tribe around the world. So, you know, when we started reaching out to the Muslim community, there were so many things uh, people said about me that were just false, you know, that I was a secret Muslim and just all kind of just crazy, crazy stuff. But guess who read all that? Not just my tribe, uh, Muslims around the world. And so when I would show up in Qatar or Saudi or anywhere else in the Middle East, 
many times they knew more about me than anyone in the States. They'd come over to me and say, thank you for what you do, for standing up for Muslims. That's, that had a huge impact for how Christians were treated in Pakistan and other places in the world. And I think we fail to realize when the rest of the world sees us treat Muslims bad, and they think that's what Christians and evangelicals are all about, hey, we're impacting our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world. And we've got a responsibility to do that. We talk a lot about rights and freedoms. And, and you know, Tyler, I was just thinking about the mosque uh, that your church protected. I've been thinking a lot about this. I'm tired of people that carry arms and circle places of worship, whether it's a mosque or a synagogue or a church, that ought to be illegal. When your Second uh, Amendment rights destroy somebody's First Amendment rights and intimidates them where they don't feel safe to worship, there needs to be a law against that. Come on, Senator Langford. Come on, Ted Cruz, John Cornyn. Come on, some of you who believe in religious freedom. It ought to be illegal for anyone to take firearms anywhere near a place of worship and march around that place to intimidate those people so they can't worship. It's just un-American. Amen? Amen. Come on, Pastor Jenkins. Am I going to have to amen myself? (laughs) No, you're absolutely right. It's right on target. It's ridiculous. I don't understand it. This is one of the things that's very troubling to me of how some of these politicians excuse behavior that's just simply unacceptable. Thank you. Amen. I've heard you preach at my church and you say that. Am I going to have to amen myself? (laughs) Hey, let me tell you something. I love you, John Jenkins, and what you've meant to our church, and, and I love you, Daniel. I'm so proud of you. Tyler, man, I love hanging out with you, whether it's the Vatican or somewhere in the Middle East or eating steak here today in Dallas, Texas. Okay, last question, and we'll let you go. What's your dream for the future? When you look at the church and all the angst, give a scenario where you see God do something. What's your dream to see God do? We'll start with you, Pastor Jenkins. Our church's vision statement is developing dynamic disciples through discipleship, discipline, and duplication. That's our vision and mission statement, developing dynamic disciples. And my hope is that we continue to develop disciples for Jesus. When it's all said and done, I'm still trying to win people to Jesus, even the Muslims. I'm loving on them so that they can know that the Jesus I'm serving is alive and real and powerful. Because the reality is, is... uh, we, we got to love on people so that when they reach a crisis in their life and they need to talk to somebody, they might turn to us and say, you know what? I see something in that person that I've that I like and that I want to embrace. And so my hope for my ministry and for the people that I lead and, and for our, the evangelical church, that we would be less hostile to people who don't think like us and more loving so that we might win them to, to Christ. If you don't know it, let me give you another line. Let me say that a little different for you, because I I know you. Less hostile and more hospitable. John Jenkins is the most hospitable pastor and man I've ever known in my life, and so is his church. I love you, Pastor. Daniel, what's your dream? Well, I want to echo what... uh, 
Pastor John said, uh, and just to add to that, um, I really hope that all the hard work that many of us are putting into this conversation, uh, ones like today, uh, and the ones that happen in back rooms, I really hope that we leave the church in America uh, much more hum humbler so that uh, those who are Gen Z and Gen Alpha coming behind us can have a, you know, a sturdier foundation to really uh, see the kingdom come so that they don't have to weed through some of these crazy conversations that we're having these days. I feel like if we can do the hard work, that'll give them a chance to even zero in on the mission even more. And then I pray that, you know, uh, as we do that, that we will have a humbler posture so that those who are not yet Christians would see that we are approachable and uh, we can have uh, civil dialogue in, in that, that our words would be seasoned in a way where Jesus would come through and uh, ultimately, again, to what Pastor John says, so that Jesus would be glorified through uh, many coming to know him. That I really hope and pray that that's what we're contributing towards. What an awesome word to hear a guy in his uh, early 40s talking about being a bridge for the next generation, paying the price up front. Daniel, you make me want to cry. I love that. Tyler. Yeah, the, the phrase that came to me is the phrase Paul says of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ um, is I really want people to see the glory of God in and through the face of, of Jesus. And so I, I feel like I want to exert myself um, at every level, uh, first and foremost, to help the church. Paul also says in Ephesians 5, 1, be imitators of God. And when you see God, who's I'll just end with this who is triune, the way I deeply believe that, in his distinctiveness, um, one from another in the Trinity, his equality and his oneness of could we foster communities that put the glory of God, which I think is love, I agree with you, Bob, um, on display by recognizing and embracing distinction, understanding our equality made in the image of God, but but really sacrificing ourselves for oneness the way Jesus did. It's beautiful. So here's my dream. March 6th, standing room only, Sunday night, Northwood Church. Dr. Alalise is going to speak on the Mecca Declaration about how we got to get along. Now, we've all been praying as evangelicals for a great revival, and revival's starting repentance. And my prayer is that all the pastors that are going to be coming from all over the country, mega church pastors, giga church pastors, that all those pastors in that room, all the Christians in that room, will begin to realize the damage that hate, discrimination, has put upon Muslims and Jews and others, and that we will repent of the absence of love that we've had for Jews and Muslims and other people, and we will be on our face before God but that repentance will not just be an emotional repentance, but it'll change the way that we act. And a great move of God will happen in this country. And people will look back on it and say, the move of God started when evangelicals got on their face and asked God to forgive them of hating their neighbor. And they are the best lovers of all. That's my dream, people. That's my dream. And I love every single one of you with all my heart. You matter to me for three different reasons, and thanks for being here today. Pastor Jenkins, I look forward to being with you March 13th. We're going to have some fun at your church on Sunday night. If you're in the uh, uh, D.C. area, 
we want you. We're coming to his church, five o'clock, March 13th. We'll be there with Dr. Alalisa and Imam Majid and myself and David Saperstein and some ambassadors and diplomats. And we're gonna have some fun together. So if you can't make it to Dallas, live in DC, come on. We're gonna have a good time together. God bless you all. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this unlikely journey with Pastor Bob Roberts Jr. And during this episode, you heard about this historic event in March of 2022 called the Global Faith Forum. It will be one of the first national gatherings of Christians, Muslims, and other faith leaders. We'll gather to discuss bridging the gap in our communities as the fear between faiths shouldn't be something that causes us to destroy one another and the world we live in, but to understand one another and move forward building resilient communities together. And you are invited. It's in Dallas, Texas, March 6th and 7th. Space is limited and it's filling up. So you can reserve your spot right now at globalfaithforum.com. For full show notes, links, and details of this episode, you can find those at bobrobertsjr.com or at boldlovepodcast.com. And we appreciate you joining us. And remember, at the Bold Love Podcast, we want to encourage you to live out your faith boldly, learn how to better love your neighbor, and how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith.